Welcome to C4 Church Online, equipping you as you follow Jesus. Well, good morning, everybody. So glad that you're here this morning. Good morning to everyone watching and listening online, to you in Port Perry, and good evening to everyone meeting up in Bowmanville. We're so glad that you are joining us in all of our locations. In 1900, the English language just had over a half a million words. In 1950, it grew to 600,000. In 1980, it grew to 900,000. And now today, there's over one million words that make up the English language. Now, I always like watching what words are added every single year as our culture evolves and we have all different ones. And this year, I was especially enjoying the words added to our great language, if English is your first language. The first one added this year was airball. And so now we all understand. Uh, Next one is totally formed by the last five years of our culture. Binge watching is now part of the dictionary. Raise your hand if you have binge watched anything in your life. Hands up. The rest of you are lying. You've all done it. You know it. It's so true. So binge watching. Netflix has literally changed our world. My favorite addition this year is butt dial. Yes, that is now in the dictionary. Butt dial. Raise your hand if you've butt dialed someone before. Yes. All right. My wife has done it many times. I think it's hilarious. Uh, Face palm is now also as a phrase in the dictionary. First world problem as a phrase is now. Uh, Humble brag has now made it in the dictionary. Uh, Photobomb is now formally part of the vocabulary of the great English language. I I couldn't believe weak sauce has made it as a phrase. In the weak sauce, yes. Uh, To my shock, yowza also has made it into the dictionary. And then mic drop, what I'm about to do with the sermon uh, right now. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. I'll be here next week too. Don't worry about it. You're saying, John, why are you bringing this up? Well, here's the reason why. Because when I said most or all of these words, you knew exactly what I meant. You didn't need me to work out the description of what they were and why. If you said a butt dial in 1950, you would have had soap in your mouth, you'd been spanked, and you would have been in detention, and they wouldn't even understood why. If you said photobomb in the 1960s, they'd think, is it like a 007 exploding camera? I'm confused. Because they don't actually live where we live right now. When I say these things, you understand. You say, well, John, why again are you bringing this up? Because context is king. That's why we at this church and all churches must continue to strive to understand what was happening on the ground when the Bible was being written to fully understand what is being taught, expected, and said. If you don't understand the background, you'll misunderstand or misrepresent what was going on. See, we don't live then like we live now, and so we need to work this out. Now, today we're going to re- reach uh, 1 Corinthians 9. We've got a Bible, virtual, physical, love you to turn there. And I just want to say up front, uh, we're not going to get through all of 1 Corinthians because of time, but we're here in chapter 9. And Paul has been working through all these things. How does a Christian live in a large, urban, multicultural, pluralistic society and be faithful to Jesus? And in the last little section, he's worked through sex and marriage and divorce and and remarriage and singleness and being single again and food and, and idols and demons. He's been working at what is black, what is white, and what is gray. What are we allowed to do and what are we not allowed to do? Now, for the fifth time in 1 Corinthians, Paul stops and says, actually, I need to talk about us. And he means himself in the church he's writing to. And basically, he's going to say to them again, the reverse of what we've all said in dating. He's actually going to say, it's actually you, it's not me. Remember back to the beginning of the series, if you were with us, people in Corinth, just like us who live in the GTA, have been deeply formed 
by our culture. And so when a bunch of people in Corinth became Christians, they just took what was in their culture and inserted it in the church, specifically around leaders. And this is what Corinth thought about leadership. They wanted leaders to be articulate and fashionable and able to impress and strong and in charge and able to debate and be like a professor and be spiritual in all things. This is what they were taught in their city. And so when they came to pastors and elders, they said, you better be this too. And if you don't measure up, you need to, well, move on. So this is what they wanted in Paul. Let me give you a modern equivalence. They wanted a professor that was incredibly good looking, dressed amazing, and a few hundred thousand Instagram followers could debate anyone on any topic at University of Toronto, speak in tongues, and cast out demons, all while holding a handcrafted flat white in his hand, blogging as he talked about his latest travels. Now, we laugh about that, but actually, let me just say this out loud. How many of you have the same expectations? What does Paul say, by the way, in response to them thinking that they wanted Superman as their pastor, and when they got to know Paul, they weren't that impressed, so they started saying things like, well, we don't need you, we don't respect you, you don't measure up, we're better than you, thanks for, you know, planting the church, but it's time for you to get out. Well, we need to go all the way back to the very first verse. You remember when he started writing this letter, he just penned these words that seem so simple, but when you understand the power struggle going on, they're not. He said, well, it's Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. He starts it like this, hey everybody, it's me. You know the guy sent to plant churches, including this one, and, and as we're just getting going in this conversation, I want to remind you, none of this was my idea. Oh, I hated Jesus with everything I am. I was at the murder of the very first Christians, and, and then God decided to save me anyway, and then he commissioned me, so none of this leadership thing is what I ever wanted. And you remember what Jesus said to me in that vision in Damascus, and 72 hours after I was thrown to the ground, he said these words like, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to non-Jews and to their kings and to the people of Israel. So I'm here by God's authority, not yours. And by the way, you have to get used to it. Ooh. Now let's not forget what the real issue is behind all, all of 1 Corinthians. It's actually the issue facing every single church in the West right now. It's an issue called the crisis of authority. Leadership authority, Jesus' authority, the Bible's authority, who has the right to say yes, no, or maybe so. And Christians 2,000 years ago were walking around saying we can do what we want, when we want, how we want, and Paul kept saying actually no, you don't get to do that. Then he started dealing with the actual issues of leadership, and in the same chapter, in, in chapter 1 verse 11, he said, my brothers and sisters... You know, some from Chloe's house have been informing me that there's quarrels among you, and what I mean is one of you saying, well, I follow Paul, And another says, well, I'm following Apollos. No, I follow Peter. And another says, no, no, I just follow Jesus. And Paul said, well, is Jesus divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized in the name of Paul? Paul, Apollos, Peter, Jesus, all same movement, all same message. But what's happening at Corinth is personal allegiance. I like him. I like his style. I like his dress. I like his views. And three of the four groups don't even like Paul. His authority and leadership is under attack. And the real kicker, of course, is the last group that said, we don't need any elders, we don't need any leaders, we don't need any pastors to tell us anything, we just need, it's me and Jesus, and we're just fine, thank you very much. Now, by the way, this great danger has haunted the church for 2,000 years, and actually it's been exacerbated in the last 25 years because of social media. That means you can have contact to anyone anywhere on earth and follow them. I like Paul, I like Peter, I like Apollos, I like Augustine, I like Calvin, I like Luther, I like Wesley. I like Charles Stanley with his big Bible. I like Brian Ooston. I like John MacArthur, Louis Giglio. 
Bill Johnson, no, I like Tim Keller, no, I like Judah Smith, I like Carl Lentz, Erwin McManus, Kevin DeYoung, see, it goes on and on. I like Dave, but I, I don't like John. I like Chris, but I'm not sure about Joel. It's okay, Joel, we love you in Port Perry. Beth, Matt, fill in the style. It, it's, it's preaching, education, gender. I like their view. I like what they do. I like their spiritual giftments. I like their emphasis. And, and Paul just says, stop. He said, where is your focus? Paul's not saying that leaders don't have authority to lead. He's not saying they're not gifted to lead by the Holy Spirit. But what he's saying in this case is you need to stop pitting leaders against other leaders and putting them on pedestals. It needs to end. Drop the drama now. 1 Corinthians 3.6, we studied this together. I planted the seed and Apollos watered it and God's been making it grow. No one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. The leader or leaders in your life, whether they're brilliant looking or ugly or great, or listen, no matter if they're boring, never, ever, ever does any leader function as the foundation of the church or the foundation of your faith. Jesus Christ is the only foundation of every church and every person who's committed to the Christian cause. And Paul says, stop this infighting. He says, actually, it's just so childish. 1 Corinthians 3.22, all things are yours. Paul, Apollos, Peter, or the world, life, death, present or future, all are yours, and you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. So he said, number one, would you stop picking leaders? You might prefer one of them. Don't, don't pit them against each other. And then he says, number two, I need to talk to the group of the Jesus-only people who, you know, you think you're so in tune and you just need Jesus. Well, actually, no, uh, that this doesn't change the truth that actually God decides some to lead it's like a sports team, one brand, one goal, one desire, but there are still parts to play. And you act like there's no team and some of you are walking around self-appointed, arbitrating what God wants or who should lead or who should not lead. And then Paul actually threw down the gauntlet in a really, really intense, non-democratic, non-Canadian way when he wrote these words in 1 Corinthians 4.1. This then is how you ought to regard us. In Greek, is this is how you must regard us as servants of Christ, as those entrusted with the mysteries that God has revealed. Now that word ought in Greek is uh, you have to make the mental decision to submit to God's will that God has placed leaders in your life whether you like them or not. Whoa. And he says, and by the way, how do I know this? He says, because I, I and Barnabas and others, we are servants of Christ. And the word servant is steward in Greek. And you're like, well, what does that mean? Well, in Roman times, in slavery, there was a chief steward who actually was a slave who owned nothing at all, but when the master was gone, the steward's word was the master's word. And what Paul is saying is Jesus is gone from the house right now, but we are his stewards. We don't own anything, but we have full authority to lead. And Jesus decided to do this, so you need to get on board. Oh. So this is quite an intense conversation coming up again and again and again, back and forth. And so now Paul, with all that background, brings this issue up a fifth time. And some of you are going, my goodness, this guy's got a problem. Like he obviously has self-image issues or he's, he's afraid and he's like, no, no. Paul brings this up one last time specifically because what he's about to do is not only shut down all the drama and also all the false accusations and deal with the issue of real rebellion at its core, he's also going to present the gospel in one of the most shocking and most beautiful of ways. So it reads like this in 1 Corinthians 9.1, and whether you're a seeker, a skeptic, a long-term Christian, or brand new, everyone listen in, because there is actually something for all of us today. It says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not the result of my week of my work in the Lord? He says, yes, yes, and more than yes. 
I'm free, God placed me here. I've seen Jesus Christ personally. Side note, none of you have, just wanna say that out loud. And I've been called by Jesus and actually I have full authority. And I know many of you don't like this, but it's just true. Now some of you in the room or at other venues are reacting. You're like, Paul's a jerk. He's throwing this in their face. No, no, hold on. He's not saying this with attitude. He's just speaking the truth. And then he says, even though I may not be an apostle to others, a Christian leaders in other communities, surely I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. He says, you want to talk about my rights as a leader among you? Okay. First, you exist because I gave up my life for Jesus and I actually came to you. If I didn't come, you wouldn't even have eternal life. A second, you think you deserve a certain type of leader. You actually feel entitled to actually form what I should be. And since I don't measure up, you think I should just move on? Okay, hold on. You want to go to metaphorical court? Let's go to metaphorical court. Let's do this. So you think I don't measure up and I need to adjust my personality and my looks and get better gifts. And here's what we're about to learn. And you think that you could use money to manipulate me to do these things? Okay. This is my defense to those who sit in judgment on me. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Uh, don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us, as do the other apostles and Jesus' brothers and even Peter? Or is it only I and Barnabas who lack the right to not work for a living now, these verses may seem sort of dry and boring to you, but they're pretty amazing. Number one, he says, you should be paying me for my service. Whoa. And not just paying me, uh, you, you should, if any of us as leaders have family with us, you should be covering their expenses too. He says, look around. Other Christian leaders are paid for what they do. It's called full-time ministry. It's vocational. It allows us to do God's work full-time without distraction or hindrance. And, and other leaders are doing it. I mean, Jesus' own brothers are doing it. You know this. Now, some of you who grew up Roman Catholic are like, I'm completely confused. Hold on. Jesus had brothers? Yes. Jesus uh, was not the only child of children of Mary and Joseph. Mary is not a perpetual virgin. That's an invention. She had sex after she was married and had multiple kids. And two of them you know. James, who wrote the book of James, and another guy named Jude, who wrote the book of Jude. So James and Jude are around and others, and they're being paid for working for their brother. And not only that, that other guy who's sort of significant in our movement, Peter, that guy, yeah, he's paid too. And actually, you've been involved in paying, with, paying them. So, so doesn't Barnabas and myself deserve the pay and salary and benefits for our hard work? So our families don't get help, but their families do? Oh, because you like them better and you don't like us. There's a double standard? So others have done this. And, oh, and Paul says, it's not just a Christian thing. It's an everyday thing. It's a normal thing. Look at your own life. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink the milk? This is an ordinary practice. Everyday life. He says, look around. Soldiers don't serve without pay. Uh, those who plant grapes can eat, plant, eat the grapes anytime they want. And those that have sheep or goats or cows, they have the right to the milk. And they can make cheese. They can even eat the animal or sell the animal. In other words, you have every right to make a living by being a vocational Christian leader. And then he says, okay, you're still not conceived. You're not, you're not, you're not believing this. You, 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 you do this with other leaders. And not only that, you actually see this in everyday life. And you actually work for a living. Okay, let's talk about God's word then. I mean, if you really want to go there, no, no problem. Even the Old Testament backs me up. Do I say this merely as a human authority? I mean, doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox. Well, he's treading out the grain. It's about, is it about oxen that God is concerned? Now, he quotes Deuteronomy 
And his point is, even Moses has his, own, has his back on this one. Even farm animals are given their due for working at their jobs. When an ox is actually doing this, he eats the grain that he's milling. And Paul's point is, well, we're far above animals, and we're not just humans. We're not superhumans, but we are actually giving out eternal life. We're showing people who God is and where salvation is found. And if in the natural order of things that God set out, God has actually worked it out that yard animals are taken care of, then those who are giving their life to the most important task, which leads to the redemption of all creation, maybe their cost should be covered too. I mean, this is common sense. Surely he's done this for us, doesn't he? But yes, this was written for us because whoever plows and threshes should be able to do so in hope of <coughs> sharing in the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? So we've worked really hard. We've given up our lives and our comfort and our families and our hopes and our dreams to work for Jesus and you're part of the harvest. And by the way, he's saying, just as a side note, you're in Corinth. Corinth was flowing with cash. Almost everyone was middle class or above. And none of you have sacrificed your comfort, but we've actually been mocked and jailed and shipwrecked and lost other jobs so we could do this. And we've been beat up and we've put in the time. And of course we should be paid. In modern terms, we should not just be given a base salary. We should be given a really good salary with benefits. Now, if others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? I mean, we know that you like other leaders, you pay for them, but we, we don't, like, we're your spiritual parents. I mean, we've given our life to you personally. So why are you ripping us off? So there's this moment, right? You can feel the defensiveness in the room. I actually can feel the defensiveness in this room right now because you have no clue where this is going because we're talking about my, you know, money in church. Moses, Peter, Jude, James, common sense. He says, I've got precedents from everywhere. And of course, right here, this is where we would expect Paul to say, you ungrateful little so-and-sos, give me my money. And in this very moment, Paul turns the tables and actually provides one of the best environments for a teachable moment that not only reverses the conversation, but shows the gospel for what it is. You know, my favorite ride, or one of my favorite rides in Disney World is Space Mountain. Has anyone been on Space Mountain before? Yeah, Space Mountain is amazing. Here's why. Because it's a roller coaster you do in the dark. Isn't that that's terrifying and awesome? And why it's so awesome is because when you're on Space Mountain, you think you're going up and what happens? You go down. You think you're going left and you end up going right. This is exactly what Paul does here. This is like a roller coaster in the dark where they, we all feel it. He's just, he's just throwing it down, mic drop after mic drop, right? And then he stops and says, oh, you think I'm just going to take you out now? He says, no, no, we're just going to turn to the right. But we did not use this right. Oh, on the contrary, we put up with anything modern translation, your weak sauce craziness, rather than hinder the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh, I haven't used the rights, and you actually all know this. I personally have not done this, and because, because let me tell you why I haven't done this. I actually chose not to use my rights that actually are okay, because I did not want you, I didn't want to give you the power to leverage money to force me to be a leader I'm not called to be or spiritually gifted to be. 
Oh, and I did not actually use my rights because I actually didn't want you to think that this was some shell game, some con game, that I was using God and religion just to get money from you and ripping you off. Oh, and I did not do this also to show you that power and rights and position and title and history, everything you value in Corinth, actually it can't have the final say and there's no real power there. Oh, and I did not do this also to show you and to demonstrate to you the radicalness and the power and the truth of the gospel itself. I've not been underhanded at all even though you keep saying and gossiping and saying I do this all the time. So I didn't use my rights. And I could have used my rights without sinning. Actually, God's got my back on this one. But I still want to say this to you. It's still you, not me. Huh. Those rights are right and expected and normal. So you could feel the crowd sort of maybe going, oh, okay, this is better. He's like, no, 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 I'm not done yet. And you're like, oh my goodness, here he goes again. He's yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I want to keep talking about my rights because I don't think you get it. Not only is it obvious, and not only is it supported in the Bible, and not only do you see this in Jesus' brothers and Peter's and everyday life, he says, you know what, let's just be, let's be religious about it. He says, you go to, if most of you are Jews, he says, 2,000 years ago, fine. All of you have been to the temple on pilgrimage, and you know this, that priests are paid their due because they're priests. He says, don't be Jewish about it. Go to any pagan temple, anywhere, anywhere. Priests are paid for their religious work. Don't you know that those that serve in the temple get their food from the temple? Those that serve from at the altar share in what is offered from the altar. And then it's like Paul can feel, he's like, yeah, but there's that little last group going, no, just Jesus and me. I don't need you, Paul. I don't need any other leaders. He says, oh, okay, you want to talk about Jesus? You, you want to use the ultimate trump card in Christianity? You want to throw Jesus down? No problem. Well, Jesus has my back on this one too. Oh, in the same way, Jesus has commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. And he's actually quoting Matthew 10.10. And so Paul says, I have everyone's backing. Jesus, who's the second person of the Trinity, not bad. Moses, Peter, James, Jude, common practice, every religion in experience, all of this. And then he says again, but I've not used any of these rights. And I'm actually not writing this in hope that you're going to do these things for me. I'm not writing this so I get some email transfer to get all my money back. Nope. I would rather die than allow anyone to deprive me of this boast. See, there's something more important. There's something more powerful, more driving, more beautiful than my God-given rights. You see it, don't you? He's saying, it's what I brought and it's what I bring. Oh, I'm nothing. I'm not the center at all. Don't get confused about that. I'm not the one that matters. It's the one that I know that matters. It's what he says that matters and what he's done. And then he says it, for when I preach the gospel, I can boast since I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. In other words, here's what he's saying. Everything in the world will cost you something. Even the right things in life will cost you something. But God has done something so unbelievable. The gospel, it's free. And I've decided to actually give up my rights, my very rights, including my livelihood, so you can actually see the profundity of the gospel that says it's actually free. Some of you are seekers here today or skeptics. You might have heard the word gospel, but it's a religious word. Maybe you've just heard gospel music as a coined phrase. And other than that, you have no clue. Well, what does gospel mean? Well, gospel is good news. It's the master theme of the Christian message, and words like this summarize it. Salvation, redemption, deliverance, recovery, escape, and rescue. 
In the Old Testament, we have all these historic experiences that were given to foreshadow what Jesus would do by God the Father's will. Noah and the ark, Israel's exodus out of Egypt, Moses uh, leading them out, Jonah being saved into the belly of a whale after three days. All of this was to prepare God's people and the world for this amazing free move of God when God would come for us and would actually demand nothing of us except our love. For God so what? Loved the world. That he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in Jesus will not die but have eternal life. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they would not believe in the name of God's one and only son. See, let that sink in this morning. God is love and God gave and God gave himself, his only son, and he gives eternal life, and he promises no condemnation unless, of course, we don't want the gift, and then we become condemned. But here's the profundity of the gospel. It actually, for real, is free. Paul says in the middle of this really nasty family dispute, if I preach voluntarily, I've got reward. If not voluntarily, I'm simply discharging the trust committed to me. It's not wrong if I use my rights and get paid, And by the way, if I don't use them, that's just fine too. But either way, what I'm trying to show you, I literally am trying to embody, incarnate this in front of you. I want the gospel to be so clear and I'm so tired of you projecting all your issues and all your clutter onto me because actually I'm trying to demonstrate to you there's something more important than your rights. There's some of you who maybe have not grown up at church or have, but maybe it's just getting to know the scriptures might ask, well, how did he live? Like, was he a beggar? No. He actually called, uh, chose to do something called tent making. He was bivocational. You say, well, what's tent making? Well, it's tent making. He literally made tents. He was mountain equipping co-op before it existed, basically. And he sold them. Now, this has become an amazing model in the last 2,000 years for many Christians. Many Christian pastors and, and business leaders, etc., missionaries, have been able to go into restricted families or restricted countries where it is against the law or illegal or it's dangerous to be a Christian, and they go in through their trade, lawyer, doctor, nurse, um, whatever, and they actually use that to get in, and they do their job very well, but they also speak to others about Jesus. Others, many of you here, do not feel called into full-time ministry, but you want to serve above and beyond. So your job, you leverage it to do that. In other contexts, there might not be the resources to hire full-time pastors or leaders, and so this is the only option. But see, in, in Corinth, money was no problem at all. They just didn't like Paul, and they didn't want to pay. And that's why he says, what's my reward? Just this that in preaching the gospel, I may offer it free of charge and so not make full use of my rights as a preacher of the gospel. Why have I decided to give up actually what I deserve? This is so profound. It's not just to show you the foolishness of what you want and what you should not want. I want to show you that all that you're holding on to, and I'm just going to pause here. This is so transferable for every one of us who lives within the GTA. Listen closely to this. He says, I want to show all of you living in Corinth. God wants to show all of us living in the Toronto context that actually you have given your life to things that there is power in, but actually from God's perspective, there is no real eternal ripple in those things at all. See, we live in a world, as Paul did, where nothing is free. It always costs you something to get in the door. To get in the door, you have to be good looking. 
To get in the door, you have to be smart. Or to get in that door, you have to be wise and older. Or to get in that door, you need to be younger and on trend. Or to get in that door, you have to be powerful. Or you, you have to be a good speaker. Or you have to wear the latest fashion. Or you have to make money. Or you have to have all these degrees. And all of us live in this. Every single one of us, within the sound of my voice, have been denied because we didn't have that thing. And here is the amazing reversal of the whole world system. Paul says, I'm literally incarnating this for you to see. The gospel is free without condition. Unconditional love, which Toronto has no understanding of, nor does Delhi, nor does London, nor does New York, nor does, listen, unconditional love and the gospel which is free cuts through everything we trust in, all we're jealous about, all we judge each other over, it's all cut down and brought down by the good news of Jesus and that is why it is such good news. It's such good news. And Paul says, I choose myself not to use my rights of wages and benefits, not only to show you my true colors, that I'm actually not a, a sham out here. I choose not to use my rights so you can actually not manipulate me to be something I'm not called to be. And I choose not to use my rights so you can actually see clearly the power of the good news of Jesus, which is upside down in every single way, but is most beautiful and most precious. Now, as we approach this passage, all of us from different backgrounds, we've got to ask ourselves the question, well, why, why this passage? Why now? Why did the Holy Spirit ask us to go through this series and this is landing at this day? Like, why? So I want to speak to you who are leaders in the room and then speak to all of us and then to you who are skeptics and seekers. Now, if you're a leader in the room, this is incredibly important. But it's transferable to everyone. Number one, never, if you, so that you can be a full-time pastor or an elder or a ministry leader or a leader in another context or you're a key volunteer that oversees others. Never let money control who you are and what you're called to do for God's kingdom as a leader. How many people come to churches and say, oh, you know, Pastor John, mm, I'd like to donate this large amount of money, but you just have to change this worship or you need to buy this thing or launch this program. And I, and I say, wow, I'm so glad for your generosity. Thanks so much. Um, but actually, we've prayed and we've discerned and the Spirit of God is asking us to do this, not that. Oh, then you don't get the money. I'm like, okay, take your money. Bye, bye, bye. Why? Because you're not actually giving to the Lord. You're giving to yourself. If you're considering doing ministry, and I say this all the time when I'm actually trying to mentor young men and women who want to go into ministry full time, I tell them if 80% of your job description is not connected to your spiritual gifts, do not do it. And it's not that the job that you're looking at is bad, it's actually good. But if running the program is more significant to that church or that ministry than you using your spiritual gifts, you will be absolutely burnt out and jaded and sad. Why? Because you, by accepting a job, are taking money that will not lead to the kingdom as it's supposed to be expressed in you. Better to be a tent maker and free than uninspired and unempowered for the kingdom. One of my earliest memories of church is drinking from a water fountain. And looking above the water fountain, there was this huge plaque. Anyone grow up in those churches where everything was plaqued? Because everything was a donation? And you, if you grew up in a more traditional context, if you did, you know the stained glass windows that are so stunning that we love in our churches, they always have what? A family name in it? I feel like saying to people, you know what? They're dead. They don't care. They're looking at Jesus. They're not even thinking about you. Just give the stained glass window in Jesus' name. Just move on. Why does this matter? Because it's not wrong we're honoring our ancestors, but the point is, why are you giving what you're giving? 
to the kingdom of God or not. And Paul says, I will not let money force me to become something God has not called me to be. Now, number two, if you are a leader or considering becoming a leader, money or other wants cannot be the reason why we do what we do as leaders. Is it wrong that we're paid as pastors and leaders? No, absolutely not. Actually, if you read the New Testament, Paul took money for his work in other cases. And as we see, Jesus supports it, uh, uh, Moses supports it, Paul did it, James, Jude, everyday life. And by the way, as a side note, let me stop, though a little, I want to thank you because this church is so profoundly generous. You allow myself and many others to be free from the preoccupations of need so we can give our lives to the gospel. You allow us to serve freely. It's God's will, by the way, that leaders are paid well, and you allow us to do this. And on behalf of the staff, I genuinely thank you for letting us do this full-time so we can get on with the mission of God. It's very kind. Thank you so much. But if you're a leader here today, I'm one of them, let me remind us all of something. We own nothing. We are only stewards. We don't own the people. We don't own the building if there is one. We don't own our influence. We're only managing another person's work and we can never do it for the money or the fame or even for the job security. By the way, never go into ministry because you don't know what to do with your life. Run far away. You're laughing, for real, run. Don't do it. When I was in Bible college, Bible college was filled with people who couldn't make it in other places so they thought, oh, I'll work for God. Are you joking me? Run away. This is not an easy job. This is, praise the Lord. Okay, that's all I'm gonna say. Peter, when he was writing on this exact same issue, summarized it a different way than Paul. When he wrote in 1 Peter 5 two, be leaders not because you must, but because you are willing. God want, as God wants you to be. Not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve. Not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. If you're an elder or a leader or a pastor, even in a business context, this is so fundamentally true. There are three places you as a Christian never lead from, which by the way, Corinth and Toronto and London and Delhi and Singapore will all tell you this is where you're supposed to lead from, but not from our side of the fence, we don't. Number one, you never lead out of duty. God loves a generous, willing person, not a person living under compulsion. You don't go into ministry because your parents want you to. You go into ministry because you've been called. And it's so amazing, that word that he uses there has two implications. One's military and one's religious. One is, I am willing to go to the front and die for the sake of my country. The other word in Greek is, I'm willing to be a religious sacrifice. In other words, God is looking for leaders in his kingdom who are willing to go and give up their life for the sake of others and be a sacrifice every single day. That never can happen out of duty. It only happens out of worship. He says, number one, never lead out of duty. Number two, never do it for the money. It's fine that you're paid and you should be paid well. This whole idea that pastors should live, you know, no, no well. But you don't lead a church to get money or get influence or, or to, to gain influence in some larger venue or to get rich because you're gonna write the next best worship song or book. Here's the question for all of us as leaders. Why do we serve? If we serve for money, reputation, to get an extra self, uh, sense of self-worth because we have a broken self-image, to add to our nest egg, to prove our critics or parents wrong, that is wrong places to serve from. We, we, if, you, if that stuff happens, fine, but we lead because we love Jesus. It's why Paul actually wrote in 1 Timothy 3.3, 3, leaders cannot be given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, and not lovers of money. Can you imagine how different the business community would be 
if one of the standards of being a business leader in our community is that they were not a lover of money. So Paul says we don't, and Peter says we don't lead out of duty. Number two, we don't lead to get influence or money. And third of all, we do not lead to gain power. And when you are given power, which all leaders are given, you are incredibly careful with it. Meekness, which is power and control, is our only calling. So all of us who are leaders sitting in this room or at any other venue, we have to go, wow, how am I doing with this? Even some of my rights that are God-given are getting in the way maybe. But here's the real question. Why does this matter? Because the world is full of leaders. And the world is watching the church to see if our leaders are any different than the other ones. And the thing that our leadership is supposedly giving out all the time is this unqualified, unconditional, loving thing called the gospel. But if they can't see the difference in me, compared to other leaders, they will not accept the gift because they won't believe it's true. And Paul said, I situationally decided to give up my rights. He's not setting precedent. He decided himself to give this up for one reason, because he needed to face down rebellion in the church and he did not want the gospel to become compromised. So here's the question for all of us here today. Do you see this? (laughs) Do you see the real gem, the real thing of value so many of you came and you're like, man, this, this infighting in the church and leadership and money, it's so yucky. And Yeah, but in the middle of it, there's this shining thing called the gospel of Jesus Christ. You that are not Christians here today, you who are seekers or skeptics or you have the name Christian, but you're not a follower of Christ, here's the good news for you. God brought you here to this community or to one of our sites or online so you could be either reminded or told of the good news of Jesus Christ. It's everything you've been looking for, knowingly or not, by the way. The good news is free. It is absolutely the opposite of what Toronto has taught us. Everything costs you. No, no, this is free. But even if you accept that it's free, it's difficult. One pastor wrote these very, very tough words. He said, you know, the gospel is unattractive, intimidating, and repulsive to the natural unsaved person and to the ungodly spiritual system that now dominates the world because the gospel exposes people's sin and our wickedness and our depravity and our lostness and it actually declares our pride to be despicable and our works righteousness, our, our goodness to be worthless in God's sight. The Bible makes it clear people cannot be spiritually changed or saved by good works or by church or by ritual or any other human means. In other words, let me put it this way. All the stuff we trust in to get through life, all of it, to impress others, to get ahead, you think about it today, honestly. It's earned, it's bought, it's inherited, or you cheat for it or you lie about it. And God comes along to every human being and says, all the good stuff that gives you value and all the bad that is bad and the neutral stuff that has credit in Toronto, that has credit to get you ahead, has, it does nothing for me. It doesn't move me at all. I'm not even interested. And God almost has this standoffish moment, especially with educated, self-absorbed, well-to-do people. Because he hates us? Because he's angry? No. He does it so we can actually see something, our profound need. Everything we fight for in life, he says, it will not move me. 
And then in that moment when you suddenly realize that all that you've done, even the good things, will not move heaven itself, God steps back and then says, oh, but I have an answer for the thing you've already done, and it's loving, and it's free, and it's unconditional. See, God has come into this moment, into this room, into Port Perry, into Bowmanville, with you on a plane, or literally on the go train, or you're running right now at your treadmill, and you know this is God speaking to you. And he's saying this to you directly. He is saying, I have come to give you something free that is real. All you need to do is trust in my son Jesus to forgive you. And if you say yes to him, see, this is what happens to you. You go from enemy to friend. God actually becomes your father and he begins to deliver you from lostness and from loneliness and from sin and deserved wrath of God and from spiritual ignorance and your own self-evil indulgence and from the demonic and from death. You'll never fear fear death the same way again because it doesn't win. He'll free you from false religion where you think God is impressed by what you do and he will begin to undo the core values of Toronto you that teach you that you are good because you're good looking or you're powerful or you're educated or you're rich. No, all of that falls away because he invades you with a love that you cannot buy or lie or cheat or earn. And he says it's free for the taking. And all you must do is this. And this is what Paul wrote under the guidance of God so beautifully so long ago in Romans 10.9. You confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And you believe in your heart God has raised Jesus from the dead. And you will be saved, redeemed, rescued, delivered, brought home. So all across this place and all across our sites, whatever you can stand, and let's just take a moment to appropriately respond in some ways. And don't be distracted by the moment. Number one, let's all pray this. Lord, thank you that you came for us and that you're free. Does anyone want to say amen to that? Like one of our staff members said today, re-evangelize us who are saved with the gospel again. Thank you. Some of us are in the room or across our, our place, our sites, and we've realized we're the ones who have used money to manipulate and not worship. If that's you, apologize. Maybe it's even in a business context or a family context. Say, Lord, I'm so sorry for using your resources to do something for me. For others of us right now who are leaders, we need to say, Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me? Duty, money, influence, power, or giving up my rights to look like Jesus. Lord, help this church to be continually molded by leaders that actually look more like Jesus than the world. Help us, Lord, whatever that looks like. Easily prayed, very difficult. Help us, Lord. And lastly, if you are that person or persons who has never embraced the Lord Jesus Christ, then this is now what you do. You say, God, you are uncreated and I am created. You're God and I am. I'm not. So hear my prayer. Number one, forgive me for my sins. My religion or my self-trust or my rebellion, whatever, all that stuff, done. I choose now to accept the free gift of Jesus Christ. His life, his death, his resurrection. I believe he physically rose from the dead and, and I ask for eternal life. I ask for a love that I don't get. I turn from my sin and I say yes to him as Savior, leader, and Lord. Come give me eternal life. Come now follow me home and follow me in my life and change me. 
Nothing else in the world is free, God. And if you actually say this is free and this is real, yes. Change me forever, I ask, in the name of Jesus. And we all set across all our sights together. Amen. Thanks for joining us. To connect to the ministries of C4, visit c4church.com.